for those of y'all who have been a part of our, I think everybody here is home folks, so I can say y'all have all been a part of our study of the life of Jesus Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. And today we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus. If any of y'all noticed on the sign outside as you come in, it was Galatians 3.27, and it says, If you have been baptized in Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. I think a lot of us tend to forget as Christians the solemn nature of our baptism when we were baptized. We forget that we promised Jesus that we were going to die to ourselves and live for him that we were thankful for what he did on that cross for us and that in the same way that he was dead, buried, and raised again, we were dead, buried. And so we have been clothed with Christ and he has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us the power and the strength and the willingness to walk in him. It says being baptized in Christ, we are clothed in Christ. We have his righteousness. When his father looks down on us from heaven, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He no longer sees our sin. He sees his son's goodness. And that's a hope that we can have. But in today's lesson, we're going to see Jesus actually come and get baptized. And so what I would like to do to begin with is just quickly review for you a couple of things that we talked about last week when we talked about the baptism of um, or the Baptist ministry, John the Baptist and his baptizing. Remember, John had gone out into the wilderness, and John was warning that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that he was commanding those who heard his proclamation to repent and to be baptized. Remember, we said the word repent means to recognize I'm going the wrong way and to turn around. And John was out in that wilderness preaching to the people of Israel saying, repent and be baptized. Really quickly for our worshipers and training, for our kids, they learned this morning in Sunday school, they learned their three key words for today is Galilee and the Jordan and the term beloved. They learned what those three terms were, Jordan, Galilee, and beloved. And so I hope that they will be listening for those words as, as we go through the sermon today. John is baptizing the children of Israel in the Jordan River. Those who receive and believe his message and recognize their need for cleansing. So the ones who were coming and being baptized were those who recognized their sin and were coming to him for cleansing. John is also emphasizing the spiritual realities of the kingdom and the need to let go of temporal things that would hinder our spiritual worship. That can be focused even on baptism itself. Remember, the baptism in this water in this room here is an ordinance that is commanded by God for believers to be baptized, to repent and to be baptized. But that water came out of a tap from out of a well, I'm guessing, that we have here on the property somewhere. Are we on well water? All right. Are we city water? Well water. All right. So that water came out of a well. And there's nothing in that water in itself that's holy. And I could get a ton of Catholic priests to come in here and bless this water. And it's not going to be any more holy than it was before they blessed it. That water is nothing in the water itself that cleanses you from your sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone that cleanses you from your sin. And by coming and being baptized, you are making a public profession towards all of the other people in this room that you have turned from your sins, that Jesus has washed you clean, and now you are physically showing them something that has happened to you spiritually. You have died with Christ, you have been buried with Christ, and you have been raised again as a new creation in Christ. And so John and Jesus, as we go through the life of Jesus... We're going to see over and over again where people, where we as fallen human beings have a tendency to confuse temporal things with spiritual realities. And so the reality is this. If you had been baptized when you were a kid, but your heart was not changed, when you came out of that water, you were a wet sinner who was still under the condemnation of God and his wrath. 
But if God has changed your heart, if you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, and you have come and made a profession of faith, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and your baptism, which is commanded by God, is a profession of something that happened to you on the inside, and now you're showing all of us on the outside. And there are many people that think that by going in that water and being dunked in that water, they are being washed clean, clean, of their sins. They are conflating a temporal ordinance with a spiritual reality. It has to happen on the inside first or the outside has no meaning. And so John is saying that. John is going to say, and, and how better can we introduce that than looking at the end of the text that we looked at last week together. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. So Jesus is going to come to John to be baptized and be anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. But before Jesus comes, look what John says. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even fit to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear the flesh, uh, threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John is preaching this message and saying, there is one coming who will baptize you with fire. And this baptizing of fire is going to purify you And for those that are not pure, it is going to condemn them, that it is going to burn them up. So God's Holy Spirit and the fire of Jesus' baptism is a baptism that reveals who we really are. And we'll see in the passage today as we go a little further that John is proclaiming a spiritual reality that was actually taught to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. He's not telling them anything that they shouldn't know. So John's purpose was to prepare a way for the Lord by calling a people to repentance. So his baptism pointed to the one who would bring about this baptism of spirit and fire. John's baptism was preparatory for the baptism that is to come. So John was preparing a people for the Messiah to come. You and I, in our baptism, we are not being baptized in the baptism of John and the baptism of repentance because the child of God who is being baptized according to the New Testament ordinance of baptism is one who has already had their heart baptized. You see the difference? John was baptizing them in preparation for the baptism of the Spirit that was to come. We are being baptized as a proclamation that that baptism had already taken place. And it's because of the work of Jesus in establishing the kingdom and coming and living the life that he did and dying the death that he lived and being raised again from the dead that established that New Testament covenant that we are now a part of. And the difference in the baptism of water and the baptism of fire and the spirit is is that everyone that is baptized of fire and spirit, spirit and fire, are children of God are a part of the eternal kingdom. There are some who get baptized in water who are not actually a part of the kingdom. Why? Because the eternal baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of God's purification has not taken place in their heart. Let's look at that in the Old Testament. I actually brought this passage up to you guys a couple months ago, but let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. And this is Ezekiel speaking to the children of Israel who are now enslaved in a land called Babylon. And he is preaching to them and he is saying, yeah, you're in trouble, but God's going to do something about the trouble that you're in. You are idolaters and God allowed these people to come in and drag you off into slavery. But I'm going to step in and do something about it. And this is what he said. Therefore, go and say to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So really quickly, God is saying, I am going to do something about your situation. And I'm not doing it because of you. I'm doing it because of me. You see, you are my children and you have my promise and I always keep my promise. So I'm going to step in and do something where you can't. You're enslaved in Babylon. You're enslaved in sin. You're enslaved in idolatry. And I'm going to step in and set you free from this. And that's what he's saying to Ezekiel. He says, he says, for I will take you from the nations. And I will gather you from all of the lands. And I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So think about that. God is saying, I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to pull you out of those nations. I'm going to wash you clean. That's kind of what John the Baptist was doing, wasn't he? He was pulling them out of the nation of rebellion, causing them to repent, to to admit they they were sinners and that they were caught up in a religious system that wasn't saving them, that they were doing everything for their own self-righteousness, their own self-will, their own self-sufficiency. And God was calling them to repent through John the Baptist. And John is doing what? He's pulling them out from among the nations. And then what did he do? He washes them clean with water. But then what did God say? And not only will I do that, but then I'm going to reach into that chest of yours and I'm going to rip that heart of stone out of you and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put your spirit, my spirit in you and give you the strength to walk in a way that you would never walk on your own. Then you will be my people and I will be your God. So it's through this regenerative act through God changing their hearts that they become the people of God. And so we need to understand that it is God that does that work. So with those introductory statements, let's go ahead and look at our text for today. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And this passage is very short. So what I would like to do for you today is I want to read for you the three parallel passages. So there's one passage in the book of Matthew that tells a story. One passage in the book of Mark that tells a story, and one passage in the book of Luke that tells a story. These remember we're harmonizing these three stories together into one story. And so, what I would love for you to do when you get some time on your own, go home and see what are the differences. What did the, what did each one say that was different from the other? There's not much difference between Matthew and Mark, but it says this in uh, Matthew chapter three, verse thirteen to seventeen. Jesus arrived from Galilee. At the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him and said, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right, so that's the Matthew passage. Let's look at Mark. Mark, this, you can find this in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. 
In you I am well pleased. And then we'll look at that last passage, which would be Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. And it says this. Now, when all of the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son, and you, I am well pleased. So Jesus has arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. So we'll take that first verse. This is uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus arrives from Galilee. We've talked in the past. It's a 60 to 80 mile trek from up north. Jesus has come down to where John is baptizing in the Jordan River. Now remember, the Jordan River starts up at way up in Mount Hermon and it flows down all the way through the land of Israel and comes all the way down and empties into the Dead Sea, right? And so all through there, that in that whole Jordan Valley there, that whole rift is very fertile land and not only that, there's plenty of water. And so John has left Jerusalem and he's gone out into the wilderness to preach. All of these people from Jerusalem are coming and being baptized and so now it's telling us that Jesus has come from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And some significant things we need to realize here. Jesus has silently been living a life for 30 years. We know from our past studies that he has now grown in what? Stature. That means he's gotten taller. Somebody told me this morning I've been getting fatter. But he has gotten taller and he has gotten wiser. Right? He has grown in stature and wisdom. And at this point in his life, at 30 year, 30-ish years old, 30, between 30 and 33 years old, he has come to the point now where he is a, a ready to proclaim and establish the kingdom that his father has sent him to proclaim and establish. And so this baptism is going to be the initiatory right for him taking the mantle and running with it, coming and establishing what his father has sent him to establish. All right. So with that said, I want you to think about some of the important things. Jesus is coming from Galilee. I want you to look at Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2, and remember this prophecy. This is seven, eight, nine hundred years before Jesus was ever born. And look what it says. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Now, the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulon, remember, that's two of Israel's, Jacob's kids, and they got the northernmost portions of the land. And what it's saying is, is that there's not going to be any more gloom in her. She was treated with contempt, but later on, she will be made glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What happens? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. So what's happening? From out of Zebulon and Naphtali, out of the land, uh, the city of Galilee or the, the region of Galilee, from the city of Nazareth is coming Jesus who says what? I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in Darkness. So Jesus is now coming down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John to establish this reality. Not only is he coming from Galilee, but he is coming to the Jordan River. We sung a song this morning on our hymn, Shall We Gather at the River? And we know from the book of Revelation that flowing from the throne of God, there is a river, right? A crystal river. And so we need to understand the significance of the Old Testament significance to the Jordan River. All right? And so I want to remind you of a story. Let's go back to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 7. All right? So Joshua, the name Joshua, who knows what that means? His name means what? Savior. It's the Hebrew name Jesus. Joshua is the Hebrew name that when it's translated into the Greek is Jesus. So Joshua means Jesus, okay? Joshua took over for someone named Moses. Moses led the children out of Egypt, 
And they went across the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, right? He divided the Red Sea, and they went through the sea. They went into the land of uh, the wilderness, and they wandered around for 40 years. And Moses was not allowed to take the children into the promised land because he took some credit for something that God did. Now, in the Bible, we need to remember this. Moses is always a picture of the law. And one of the significant statements is being made by Moses not being allowed to take the children into the promised land is that the law will never be good enough to get us the promise. The law is perfect. The problem is not in the law and God's declared will. The problem is in what? Our ability to keep it. Moses was the most humble man to ever live. He was a righteous man. Moses in heaven, we know that because the angel and the devil are fighting over his body, right? But we know that Moses is in heaven. Moses did not get to go into the temporary promised land of Israel, but Moses guaranteed went into the eternal promised land of heaven. But Moses was not allowed to take the children of Israel into the promised land. So who was commanded, who took over command after Moses? Joshua. And what does his name mean? Savior. And what is his New Testament name? What would it be translated? Jesus. So now what we're going to do is we're going to have Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel, all of the children of Israel are on this side of the Jordan River. And they are going to now what? Go into the river. And come out on the other side where? In the promised land. And then Joshua, the Savior, is going to take those 12 tribes and claim the promise. So that's the story we're reading right here. So it says, now the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel. That they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests. So we have a priest who is carrying the Ark of the Covenant. That is the mercy seat. That is the place where God's mercy rests. That is where the presence of God dwells on the mercy seat. Saying, when you come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you will stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from you before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That's the seven nations there, right? Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all of the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves 12 men... From the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So then the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap and a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite of Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on firm ground, on dry ground, in the middle of the Jordan River, while all of Israel crossed on the dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So in the Old Testament, the children of Israel are standing on this side of the Jordan River. The priest and the Ark of the Covenant goes and stands in the river. And by doing so, God cuts off the flow of the river and opens it up so all of the children of Israel can come through. And that's what we're seeing when we see Jesus, who is our high priest. 
Not only that, he is the mercy seat. He is the place that we go for mercy. And not only that, he is the place where God's glory dwells. That's like the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was meant to point us to who Jesus is. And so now we have this in this Old Testament picture that really happened. We have these priests standing in the middle of the Jordan River, right? Dry ground because the river has split and opened a way for what? For all of the children of Israel to go into the promised land. Well, what do you think we're seeing here with Jesus? Jesus is being baptized into the Jordan River, and he is now opening a way for all of the children to come into the promised land. You see how that works? He's establishing this uh, new kingdom, this new covenant, and this baptism is an initiatory right to say it's happening now. Think about it. He had 12 disciples. There was 12 children of it, 12 nations of Israel, wasn't there? And he's going to now take Jesus and those 12 disciples are going to now go in in and establish the promised land for us. You see how that works? It's a beautiful thing to think about that all throughout time, all throughout history, God's plan has been playing out. And those physical people, those real people, really did the things that they did. They really went and stood in the middle of the Jordan River and the Jordan River really dried up and the children of Israel really walked across into the promised land. They didn't do so good once they got over there, right? But the reality is, is God made a way for them and they obeyed him and they trusted him and they walked in his way. And all of those physical real things that happened point us to another physical real thing that happened that Jesus physically came and stood in the Jordan River to make a way for us to come into the promised land. He was, at that point in his life, he was establishing the fact that he was here. The kingdom is at hand. God is doing what he, Jesus is doing what his father sent him to do, which is to establish that kingdom so that he could take those 12 disciples and come and proclaim a gospel message so that one day you and I could hear it. So that one day you and I could follow them. See, it's a beautiful thing to think about how God's plan is in place and how all of this stuff, and none of it happens by accident, and none of them is is, um, inconsequential or of of no circumstance. Like, these things are important, what Jesus is doing. And so we see that. We see that uh, the prophesied one has now come from Galilee, and he has been baptized in the Jordan River, but John tried to prevent him, and he said, wait, wait. I have need to be baptized you by you, and you're coming to me. So here's Jesus saying, John, I want you to baptize me. And John said, whoa, whoa, you need to be baptizing me, right? Well, look back at John, uh, at Matthew 3, 11, and we'll remember what uh, John's statement was. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me uh, is mightier than I. I'm not even fit to remove his sandals, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so remember, at birth, John was indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And John is on a divine mission being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he's doing. And so John is not quite aware of everything yet, but John is aware of who Jesus is. And he's like, I have no right to baptize you. You are the one that needs to be baptized in me. And we need to understand that. When God's spirit is at work in our hearts, we recognize our real place in the kingdom. And it's at his feet, not over his head. John knew what he was worth as compared to Jesus. And he said, no, no, I need to be baptized in you. But isn't it funny that Last week in our sermon, we saw John the Baptist see a bunch of people come to be baptized. And he said, who are you, you bunch of snakes? You think I would baptize you? So there was a group of people that came to him wanting to be baptized. And John was like, oh, no, you're not worthy to be baptized. And now it's flipping on his head, isn't it? And now what is he saying? I'm not worthy to baptize you. See the difference in that? And that's beautiful to think about. So um, Jesus answered him in verse 15 and says this. Permit it at this time. But Jesus answered him, 
permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. By undergoing baptism, Jesus is anticipating his own baptism of death. By which he secures righteousness for his people. So for you and I, when we are baptized today in, in, in uh, the baptismal, we are recognizing what? That we have died with Christ, we have been buried with Christ, and we have been raised again with Christ in the newness of life. In Jesus' baptism, Jesus is recognizing the, re, the stark reality that nobody else was recognizing that he had come to die. That he had come to die to himself and live for who? His father. And that they were going to bury him, nail him to a cross and then bury him in a grave. He knew what he had come to do. He knew the significance of what it was going to take to, or he knew what it was going to take for him to establish the kingdom. And he's showing everybody ahead of time. He's prophesying, if you will, what's going to happen to me. By undergoing baptism, Jesus is, is um, recognizing or anticipating his own baptism of death. Now, one of the first indications of a true servant of God is their willingness to do what God commands. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying uh, we must fulfill all righteousness. My father has a, an expectation for me. My father has a command for me. My father has decreed that this is the way that my life is going to go. And in this baptism, I'm recognizing this. And I am dying to self and living for God. I'm recognizing that I am here to do what he has commanded me to do. And that's what he says later. He says, my father's will I've come to do. And so one of the things that we need to understand is, is that there's only one person that has ever lived a life worthy of heaven. And it's Jesus. And the reason that that life was worthy of heaven is because he did everything his father commanded. He fulfilled every single rung on that ladder of righteousness. So many people think that we got to work our way up to heaven. We got to do all of these things to get to God when in reality it's God who has gotten to us through his son. And the way he got to us is that his son came and did everything that we could not. His son came and lived the life that we could not so that we could have a life we could never earn. He came and earned a life for us that we could never earn. And by trusting him in him and by knowing him as our Lord and Savior, we are clinging to his righteousness. And so our baptism is now an expression of our willingness to do what he has commanded us. He's Lord, not me. And I can tell you, I look around the room and I see a few gray hairs, a few. And many of you in this room, just like me, are well beyond the years where you were baptized and where you made that promise to follow Jesus and serve him. And I want you to think about all of the times that you have failed him since. Boy, that was some, it's a special time. It's a special thing to happen in your life. And we often lose sight of the fact that we said, I'm going to die to me and live for him. Because by the time the towel hits our head, we're already starting to do our will again. Yeah, but not Jesus. So Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. John's baptism will be remembered to have two focuses. One, that it is a baptism of repentance. That it is a turning away from this world and turning to the kingdom of God. And number two, the eschatological significance. What do I mean by that? This is signifying an eternal reality. Jesus' death, burial, and re- uh, Jesus' baptism is expressing eternal, an eternal reality that he has come to die to save those who are his. He will save all of those areas, and his father has raised him up as proof positive that that sacrifice was accepted. And not only that, but mine and your, our baptism is an expression of an eternal eschatological reality too, that what? 
one day we'll go to be with him. That I have died to my old self, that I've been raised in the news of Christ, and now I'm going to walk in Christ. And the reality is that because my heart has been changed on the inside, because I have his promise, I'm now his forever. And so there's a significance in that that we need to remember. So there are some ways that John's baptism is different than the New Testament or New Covenant baptism that Jesus commands, and we'll see that in a minute. But there are also ways in which it's the same. There has to be repentance. There has to be death. There has to be burial. There has to be resurrection. And not only that, but in the same way that Jesus told John, it's fitting for us to do this. We're going to see in a few minutes that God has commanded us to be baptized in the same way. And it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It does not make me any more righteous to be baptized than to not be baptized. But if I am righteous, my desire will be to do my Father's will. And by being baptized, I'm showing that I'm trusting in his righteousness, not my own. That I'm dying to myself and I'm living for him. And so we need to remember that as we think. John uh, and Jesus fulfill the will of the Father by going through with it. They say it is proper for us to do that. Jesus said it is proper for us to do this. So in verse 16 it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on uh, him as a dove and lighting on him. Now, there's a lot of debate on whether this is Jesus that saw this or John that saw this. We go to the book of Mark, and we will know. All I can tell you for sure is that Jesus saw it. Because in the Mark passage, it said he, Jesus, saw the dove coming to descend upon him. We are, we know that God the Father spoke in a vocal voice and that there were people in that, in that event that heard the Father speak. So this was, uh, this was one of the three times in the, in the life of Christ that his Father is literally going to speak from heaven. Right? There's three times. I'm not going to tell you all of them. We'll get to them in the next year, a couple years. If you want to cheat and dig ahead and go find out where they are, you can go find out for yourself. Uh, but this is one of them. Um, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you. The second one is at the Transfiguration where him and Moses and Elijah are standing on the mountain, and he says to John, Peter, and James, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then there's one time right before he goes to the cross where um, uh, that Philip brings some Greeks to him, and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And most of the crowd heard thunder rumbling is what it said. They didn't, didn't clear it here. Those are three times that he literally speaks from heaven. But of significance for us, um, and especially for those of you who have been a part of our Sunday school class for, for at least a little while, this is a Trinitarian declaration here, isn't it? You have the Father. How is he represented in this? He's speaking where? From heaven. You have the Son. Where is he? Standing in the water. And you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him like love. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And... Despite our Unitarian friends' misunderstandings, Jesus, uh, God is not a ventriloquist. He's not throwing his voice. It's not Jesus speaking as the Father and then going up to heaven and echoing and bouncing back down. This is the, the being or the person of the Father speaking to the person of the Son and, of the, Holy, and the Holy Spirit being sent to descend upon the Son. And so it's... God is one being, God is three persons, and this is one of the clearest Trinitarian declarations in all of the Bible. We have the Son standing in the water, we have the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and we have the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son who I am well pleased. So, or or that verse 17. So he says, uh, let's look at that Mark 11 passage, if you will, really quickly. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 11 uh, the, the other context says, A voice came out of heaven and said, You are my beloved son in whom in you I am well pleased. So the father is actually speaking to his son Jesus. He's giving confirmation to Jesus. Uh, and so we see this. Remember again that this is the point in which his earthly ministry is being established and propelled. 
And we also need to see that the Spirit of God has come down upon him like a dove. um, Now, I didn't do a whole lot of preparation on the dove part of this, but one thing that kept coming to mind all week as I was reading this passage, I kept thinking about uh, the dove after the flood. Y'all remember at Noah's Ark when Noah sent the dove out and the dove came back and didn't have anything, and then he's waited seven days and sent him back out again. And what did the dove come back with this time? An olive branch. And what is an olive branch a symbol of? Does anybody remember? Peace. That's exactly right. And so God in all of his wrath had destroyed the entire earth and everything in it, everything that had breath in its nose except those who were in the covenant of the ark, in the ark. They were safe. And now God is making a proclamation that despite his wrath, those in the covenant will know his peace. And so I just kept thinking about the reality that Jesus has come uh, to seek and to save that which is lost. And we'll see a passage in a couple of weeks where Jesus is going to say, I come to seek and save that which is lost. And, and, uh, but there's another reality, too. Jesus has come to judge. Now, in his first ministry, in his first advent, he has only come to seek and to save that which is lost. When he comes back the next time, it's going to be trouble for those who have not trusted him. He's coming back to judge. But at this point, we see the Holy Spirit coming down upon him in the, the, the appearance of a dove. And it just constantly reminds me of God's peace that is found in Christ. But why is the Holy... If, if Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God, and they all are, why is the Father sending the Holy Spirit to descend upon Jesus? And that's a question we need to make sure we answer before we leave. See, the reality is, is that Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And Jesus has weaknesses and frailty. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. He told the woman at the well, what? I thirst. He gets sad. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. And so he is fixing. Next week, we're going to see the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to see where the Holy Spirit is going to drive him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as a man... He would not have the power to stand against the devil were it not for the Spirit giving him the strength and the power to do so. So Jesus is our high priest and Jesus is God, but he's clothed in humanity. And the Holy Spirit has come to enable him to do what his Father sent him to do. And the same thing in that sense applies to you and I. It is only through the power of the Spirit of God that we are able to do the things that God commands of us. On our own, we would fail. So Jesus is perfect and Jesus is sinless, but Jesus has the Holy Spirit descend upon him to empower him as a man to do the things that he's going to do in his ministry, which is what? Calls the blind to see, calls the deaf to hear, raise the dead, die on a cross and be resurrected. The Spirit is now empowering him to do what his Father has sent him to do. We see that in our prayer lives, do we not? The Holy Spirit empowers us to pray in ways that we can on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the strength and the discernment and the ability and the willingness to do that which we can't do on our own. And so we see that in Jesus' life. So we see this Trinitarian disclosure. Now, the voice is from God. He's from heaven and testifies that God himself has broken silence. And this is a clear sign that the messianic age is upon us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here, if you will. Let's look at a couple of passages. So Jesus, uh, he says in verse 17, this was the voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the word beloved and the kids learned this this morning in Sunday school, I'm guessing. The word beloved is a very simple term. What does it mean? It means he who is loved. You be loved. Right? And hopefully you husbands are calling your wives your beloved. And hopefully you kids are calling your mom and your dad my beloved. And hopefully you moms and dad are calling your children your beloved. Right? 
I, sometimes I hear parents and they're not calling their kids beloved, they're calling them some other things. But the reality is, is it is a term of endearment. And it's a spiritual, a special bond that allows you to be able to call someone. There's an old pastor, some of y'all probably heard him on the radio, named uh, J. Vernon McGee, if y'all ever listened to the old, uh, right, the, through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee. And he always used that term, now my beloved, right? Well, what is he saying? He's saying, you people are my family, my eternal brothers and sisters, and I love you. I love you in Christ. And so to be loved, when the father is, point, is saying this to his son who's standing in that water, this is my son, my beloved. My love and my grace and my eternal mercy is on him. I love him. He is my beloved. If you go back to oh, that you know, Old Testament book, uh, the Song of Solomon that most of you ladies in here read. Most guys don't hardly even read it because it sounds like a love story. It is a love story. It's the story of the uh, bride, uh, groom for his bride and a bride for a groom. But that word is said in there like 5,000 times. Not that many times, but it seems like it. Every other word. My beloved, my beloved, my beloved. And it simply means you are loved. And so the Father is declaring, this is my beloved Son who, who, in whom I'm well pleased. And I want to remind you of a couple passages as this messianic age is being established of who Jesus really is. Psalms 2, 7 and 9 says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. All right, let me go back to, go back to the beginning. Let's read it one more time. Starting in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, we talked about the decree of the Lord this morning. And, what, and so when was Jesus begotten of the Father? Eternally. When was it? It was eternal. There's no limit on it. He's always been the begotten of the Father. He is eternally begotten of the Father. But it's saying, I will make this decree, and you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then what's going to happen? The next verse says what? Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. This is his beloved son, who he has begotten. And as he's standing in this water, he's saying, son, I'm about to give you the nations. I'm about to give you your kingdom, your inheritance to the very ends of the earth. And what is he going to do? He's going to love them and squeeze them and, and tell them he'll never let them go. Well, yeah, he does do that because he is merciful. But what does verse 9 say? You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. He gave him the power to come in and lead captivity captive, to stomp the devil in the dirt and to save a people for himself and establish an eternal kingdom. And so this psalm is a reminder as we hear Jesus, uh, God the Father's voice echoing from heaven to his son standing in that water, we think of this verse. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And then in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, we see this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Does that sound familiar? I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So it's saying, this is my son, this is my beloved. I put my spirit upon him and he has come to establish this kingdom. And in both of so what we see in that text, in the Isaiah text, is that he won't even hurt a bruised reed. He's going to come gently and mercifully. So we see the merciful servant and we see the just servant. We see the the king that rules with an iron rod. And that's up to me and you, which Jesus, we're going to know. 
we repent, turn to him, we know his mercy. We reject him and walk away from him, and we know his wrath. We know his justice. And so there we go. We see that in this baptism, the eternal kingdom is being established. Now, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit does not change the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He was the Son before the Father said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's just making that fact known to us now. Um, It doesn't give him any new rights. Rather, it identifies Jesus as the promised servant and the beloved Son. And it marks the beginning of his public ministry and his direct confrontation with Satan. The war is about to be on. So with that said, we finish up the text. I do want to quickly go through some things with you. Uh, When we we had our first communion here, I went through and taught you uh, about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I want to quickly review for you some things that we believe as Baptists about the ordinance of baptism. Now remember, the baptism of John and the baptism of the New Testament covenant baptism is, it has some similarities, but it also has some differences, right? They were being baptized for what was to come. We are being baptized for what has come, what is realized, all right? So baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament. Now remember that word testament means covenant. So all of those who are baptized are professing to be members of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? The eternal kingdom of God. It's the eternal promise of God. And so by professing this, you are saying that God has done a work in your heart, that he has washed you clean from your sins, that he's ripped that heart of stone out of you and given you a new heart, and you are now walking with him. You are willingly dying to yourself and being raised again with him in a newness of life. Willingly. So, it is ordained by Jesus Christ to those being baptized as a sign. Let's turn really quickly to the last verse and then we'll wind it down in Matthew 28. Right? Matthew 28, verses 28 to 20. And this is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. And then Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I command you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this baptism is commanded by Jesus for us to do. And it is not only just so you can be dunked in some water, is so that you can be raised in a newness of life. And a part of that newness of life, a part of that New Testament covenant, is your willingness to grow in a knowledge of who Jesus is through the study of his word and through the walking in his word. So a part of the rest of your life is supposed to be about discipleship. We are baptized and then we are discipled. And what does it mean to be a disciple? A learner. And discipline is the, root, is the root word of discipline. And discipline is not always a joyous thing. You have to, I can promise you that many of you can now uh, readily admit that reading your Bible every day is a discipline. It requires discipline. You have to stop doing what you're doing and put that down and do this. And discipline is not always fun. Discipline is not always easy. And discipline is not always something that we take kindly to. But baptism and discipleship are part of being a child of God. So, it is a sign. Baptism is a sign. It is a sign of our fellowship with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. It is a sign of us being grafted into him. When he went down in that water and was raised again, we were already on his mind. When he died on that cross and poured out his blood for us, we were already on his mind. We were in that sacrifice because he was making it for us. 
And so this baptism is a symbol or a recognition of the fact that we have been grafted into Jesus. It is a recognition that we have been forgiven for our sins. It is a willful submission to God through Jesus to live a new life. You are willfully standing in front of all of your eternal family and saying, look, guys, I'm going to be his child now. I'm going to stop acting like the world, and I'm going to start acting like my father who are in heaven. I'm going to start acting like his son because I'm his kid, and I'm going to act like my father. And so it's a willful submission to walk the discipline and the truth of God's word. The only people that should be baptized are those who profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires a willful recognition of turning from sin and a willful recognition that I don't want to live that way anymore. One of the problems with babies being baptized is is that babies don't repent of their sin. Babies have no clue that there's a difference between right and wrong. And it is only the repentant who is qualified to come for baptism. Not only that, uh, the outward element that should be used is water. People should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of Pentecostal churches, a lot of Unitarian churches that are baptized in the name of Jesus. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. Well, Jesus is God. But the proper uh, baptism is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, if we were to have somebody to come and join our church who was from a Pentecostal background and they tell me I was only baptized in the name of Jesus, then I would ask them to willfully submit to being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If I was to have somebody come and join our church who had been baptized in a Catholic church as a kid or baptized in a uh, Presbyterian church as a kid, I would ask them to submit to believer's baptism. Right? And a lot of churches teach that that baptism counted even if they didn't mean it. But I think that it, I, I know that the Bible teaches us that it is a willful profession of faith. Yes. And only the repentant, only the one who has a heart from Christ can truly make that. And so I would ask them to come and submit themselves for baptism to be a member of the church. Um, the outward element should be the water. Now, it is properly administered. To be properly administered, the person needs to be immersed. Yes. I had an old pastor, some of y'all know Cecil Hodges, but I've seen him baptize somebody twice because the side of the head stuck out of water. <laughs> right? And he said, no, you've got to go all the way under. You've got to be immersed. Because we're not baptized with sprinkling. We're not baptized with Christ. Yes. We're baptized in Christ. Yes. There's a big difference in those two. And there's also a big difference in the word baptizo and rantizo. Rantizo means to sprinkle. Baptizo means to submerge. And again, like I told you guys last week, I, I, I argue all the time with my Presbyterian brothers. I, I do believe they're brothers, but we argue all the time about the mode of baptism. And I tell them it's, it's about baptism. So oh, well, baptism, baptizo can mean either sprinkling or immersion. I said, well, you need to go down to the Greek Orthodox Church and watch them baptize their infants. Now, I'm not saying that baptizing infants is a good thing. It's not. But the Greeks, the Greek Orthodox Church, the ones that speak Greek, they take their babies and they plunge them all the way under the water and pull them out. Matter of fact, they baptize them in the name of the Father, they plunge them. They baptize them in the name of the Son, they plunge them. And they baptize them in the name of the Holy Spirit, they plunge them three times. So the word baptizo to the Greek Orthodox Church means to dunk, to submerge, to immerse in. And so, again, be graceful with people who, be graceful with people who are, don't believe how we believe. Yes. I do firmly believe that I have brothers and sisters in Christ who have never been submerged, immersed in water. I do believe that there are people in other churches that were sprinkled as a kid that come to faith in Christ. They've just never made a public profession of it. Yes. And again, that water's not what saves me. But it is commanded by Jesus, and we need to make sure that we, we observe that ordinance. It's, a, it's an eternal ordinance that's been given to us. And not only that, it's a profession of your faith. And your kids are watching. Your families are watching. 
And prayerfully in the coming days, we'll get to see a baptism here soon. And it's a special time. It's a very special thing to see somebody yield their life to Christ. So with that said, we'll go ahead and close the message for today. I do hope that this is um, giving you some things to think about. And next week, um, we're going to see the temptation of Jesus. We're going to see him being led out into the wilderness and being tempted to the devil. So let's um, go ahead and we have one more song to sing.